A wonderful Savior is Jesus. verse in that song is the one that says, with numberless blessings each moment he crowns. And we already had a reference to the human body. I am a copy editor of medical journals, and I'm here to tell you that that's not an exaggeration. There are millions of miracles happening in your body all the time. And uh, we sung, sing, sometimes sing that song, Count Your Blessings, and I guess we should. Uh, but it really is sort of impossible because they are numberless. So let's sing that. With Good morning. I've looked forward to this for a long time, even before I was invited to come here. I always wanted to visit this congregation, so thanks for the invitation. And Brother David, I just was amazed when you stood up and read Luke 11, because I want to talk about the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6. So you can turn there. We're going to talk about the prayer that God gave us. The more I look at this prayer, the more I'm amazed that it covers, actually, and the thing I want you to see this morning, it covers every aspect of our lives. It's just an amazing prayer, the brevity of it, and the scope of its um, coverage of our lives. <clears throat> now, this is the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to tell them to do. They never asked him to tell them how to preach, how to cast out devils, how to heal. They never asked him for any of those things. And I think the reason they didn't is because they saw that if they could ever learn to pray like he prayed, those things would take care of themselves. They saw their master pray without ceasing. Now, I used to wonder how you could do that, but now I realize that people can text without ceasing. So <laughs> I guess they could have learned to pray without ceasing. Uh, I had to put that in there. Uh, <clears throat> he prayed after feeding the 5,000. He prayed. He was praying when the Holy Spirit came upon him. He prayed all night before choosing his disciples. He prayed after he healed and taught many times. He said demons cannot be cast out except by prayer and fasting. He said men ought always to pray and not to faint. And especially he prayed at Gethsemane before he went to the crucifixion. In fact, he said to the disciples on that occasion, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And I'm convinced that the battle was not at the cross. The battle was there in the garden because he was struggling in that garden. If you read in Mark chapter 14, I think it is, it says he went into that garden desperately depressed and with terror and with horror. After all, he did have a human body. 
and he knew what he was facing even beyond that. And uh, I never thought of Jesus in that way, that he would be terrified and he'd be horrified and he'd be deeply depressed. But I looked up those words one time when it said he began to be very heavy. That's what those words mean. But when he left the garden, that struggle was over and everything we see from there on was just perfect poise. He said the right thing, he did the right thing, he was not frustrated. It, it was, there's where he did the, the, the conquering. And of course the disciples had the opposite reaction. They, were, they scattered and they were terrified and they were afraid they were going to be crucified because they didn't watch and pray. And I think that tells us something, that our battles are fought in the closet. That's where they're fought. And when we fight the battles there, then we can face life the way Jesus faced it, meeting the crisis with poise and dignity. After he left that garden, the rest was just taking the spoil. That's, that's what was left to do, even though there was tremendous suffering. Well, J. Oswald Smith said years ago, there are seven words that would change the world. And they're found in James chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you ask not. He said, if we could ever get that through our heads, it would change the world. You have not because you ask not. In fact, Samuel said to Israel that neglected prayer is sin. This is what he said. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, I never thought of it in those terms until I was studying uh, this sermon and thinking about this, that neglected prayer is actually sin. It's actually a, a, a selfish missing of the mark of what we really are supposed to be doing. Now, this is an amazing model prayer. Uh, <clears throat> the Anabaptists actually used this prayer as instruction for baptism. I have a sermon at home, or a, a, a copy, of the instruction that they gave from this prayer instructing applicants for baptism, and that's one thing that piqued my interest. They must have felt that everything they needed to say to a baptismal applicant was in this prayer. And so this has always been an interest to me. Well, this is an interesting prayer. Of course, we have God uh, focused on at the beginning rather than ourselves. And then we have the past, the present, and the future, all taken care of in this prayer. We have the past, forgiveness of the sins that have already occurred. We have the present, bread for today. We have the future, deliverance from evil. So there it is. All of life, the past, the present, and the future, all taken care of in this prayer. So I want to speak on, this will be the title, the 10 postures of prayer. The first thing that I want to notice is we are to pray as sons. It says, our Father. That's our relationship with God, Father. That was almost never said in the Old Testament. I think Psalm 103 is the only place where God is referred to as our Father. But that's how we are supposed to regard God. Now, how do children regard a father? Well, they regard a father with, with a, a, a tremendous amount of awe. They believe everything he says. They basically live realizing that they need to be under his authority and that uh, consequences of not doing that are, are not good. So they regard him at, with a lot of awe. He is our father. I had a seventh grade teacher who gave an illustration, uh, and this was in public school. She uh, gave this story about herself that really tells us how a child relates to a father. She said one night before she went to bed, her father read her a story about an elephant. 
And like parents do, just to be funny, he pronounced it elephant the whole way through the story. The next morning, coincidentally, the teacher read a story about an elephant. And as soon as the teacher said elephant, her little hand went up. And she said, teacher, you are not saying that right. That word is elephant. And she told us that she absolutely, with all her arguments, could not convince the teacher that the word was elephant. I mean, she could not come to the point where she believed the teacher that the word was elephant because her daddy had said elephant. And that's a child. The child believes daddy is always right. And my daddy can do anything. That's the child's relationship to a father. And that's the relationship we should have with God, a belief that he can do anything and that everything he says is right. If he said it, that's the way it is. All right? Not only that, but the idea that God is a father and we are his sons and daughters. I don't know if you ever stop to think about that, that you are part, an intimate part of the family of the person who created this whole universe. In fact, John was so overcome with that that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. If you look up that word manner, and maybe you have another translation here that would give this, but it's the idea of strange. What strange love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It's amazing. I think if God had said, look, those people there are headed for perdition, I'm going to uh, rescue them, and I'm going to make them second-class citizens. I'm going to make them slaves in my kingdom. I'd have been happy with that. At least I'd have been delivered from perdition. But that he did more than that. He decided to put us in his family, privileged children of the creator of the universe. I don't know what that does to you, but it gives me goose pimples. This is just amazing. The Bible says he hath not delivered us to bondage again to fear, but he's made family, and we cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Father, you're our Father. We are your children. It's a privileged relationship. We can make huge requests of this Father. We have a song in our hymnal, it's probably in yours too, Come my soul, thy suit prepare. Then one of the stanzas says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. We sing that in one of our hymns. He's our father and he has everything. He is the creator of the universe. All right? And the Bible says, everyone that asketh receiveth. Really? Well, you have to understand the King James English. They tell me, and I'm not a Greek scholar. I tell people I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. The little Greek runs a restaurant. The Hebrew runs a little Hebrew runs a clothing store. So that's the extent of my, my knowledge of Greek and, and, and uh, uh, Hebrew. But they tell me that that ETH in the King James Version is one of the reasons I have a preference for the King James Version. Usually, not always but most of the time means continual. So everyone that continues to ask, everyone that continues to seek, everyone that continues to knock, and we have two instances, two parables, where he talks about persistence. Now, why would we have to persist in prayer? What the Bible tells us, God already knows our needs. But obviously, must have something to do with us. It's a little bit like a boy who comes to the supper table and says, Dad, I want a bicycle. 
oh, okay. Well, knowing children, tomorrow night he'll have something else in his mind. I won't take that too seriously. But the next night he says, Dad, I want a bicycle. Oh, it got a little stronger. And a few nights later he says, Dad, I need a bicycle. Oh, now he needs a bicycle. Okay. And then he starts to spell out those needs. And after about three or four weeks of that, the dad says, you know what? I think now if I get him a bicycle, he'll appreciate it. And uh, it'll be something he, he, he'll really use. Because now I know it wasn't just a whim in his mind. And so I think this coming to God persistently demonstrates, and God finally sees that we understand our need, and, and it's not just a passing thought we had. We pray. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you prayed for something once or twice, and a couple months later you realized you'd quit praying for it? You just you forgot all about it. Well, God's merciful, and I'm sure he answers some of those prayers too, but the ones he really pays attention to are the ones you pray day after day, and it becomes more persistent and more intense and more desperate. And then God knows that you will regard the gift differently than you would have otherwise. So we're to pray as sons. He's our father, and he's a father with everything in his hand. The second thing we notice here is we are to pray as brothers. There's not a plural pronoun in this whole prayer. I'm sorry, they're not a singular pronoun. Seven plural pronouns. Never do we see I, never do we see me, never do we see mine. It's always our and us. Now, the Anabaptists really camped on this. They realized that Christianity was not just an individualistic experience. Our Anabaptist forefathers saw it as a collective experience. In fact, they had a statement I'm going to quote right from them. No man can come to the Father unless he bring his brother with him. That's a quote from Anabaptist literature. You see, most people have this idea that it's individually they're coming to God. But the Anabaptists said, no, we're coming to God together. And just as Jesus said, if you're there before the altar or when you're praying, you remember that there's something between you and a brother. He has ought against you. It's not your problem. It's his problem. But there's a problem. That is more important than your worship, than your prayer. You go get that made right and then come and offer your gift. I do want to turn to another passage here on this one. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, which makes us extremely urgent that we get our relationships right with our brother because of what it says here. All right? We cannot say father unless we're ready to claim every member of his family as a brother. He's not going to have any broken relationships within the family. We have to claim all of his family if we are going to call him father. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 18 says, We comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ. It's, it's a corporate experience, all right? There is so much individualism today in Christianity. It's just me and God. That's not at all what Jesus taught. That's not at all what the apostles taught. And that's not at all what we see here. We want to look now at verse 10 and 11. This is an amazing statement. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And I want you to look at this shocking statement. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Wow. Wow. 
Does that mean that every sin is connected to some relationship problem? Well, stop and think about it. If you lie to somebody, obviously there's a problem in the relationship. If you steal from somebody, obviously there's a problem in the relationship. If a young man fornicates with a young lady, there's something wrong with that relationship. When you stop to think about, all sins are relational. And he says if you could ever get every relationship right and you had a proper love for everybody, there would be no occasion at all in your life for sin. Now, I know we won't get that done perfectly. We have to keep working on these relationships, and we do sometimes do wrong. And so, but this is, this is the ideal, that if we could ever get every relationship right, there would be no sin in our life. And so that should be a goal that we have, to keep all of those relationships the way they're supposed to be. And so then I want to read the next verse. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness, that hatred, has blinded his eyes. And there are many people who make all kinds of wrong decisions because if they did something different from what they did, it would benefit somebody they don't want to benefit. And so they make stupid decisions. Their focus is on this relationship that's wrong, and everything they decide in relation to that turns out to be the opposite of what they should be doing. This is a very practical truth that Jesus is teaching here. So... <clears throat> We pray as brothers. The next thing we find here is which art in heaven. We pray with reverence. We pray with reverence. God is the great other. There are many people who talk about God as if he's just sort of a buddy. Uh -uh. Now, he does love us. I mean, there's no question about that. But he's not, he's not a buddy on our level. In fact, the psalmist said at one time to the idolaters, he said, your problem, the reason you're idolaters is you thought God was like you. You were treating God like a human being. And that's why you did what you did, because you had a totally wrong concept of the transcendent God who's way above the rest of us. And he wants to come down to our level to lift us up to him. He's not going to come down to our level to be on our level. Um, <clears throat> So this is a truth we need to learn. I think about the spies when they went into the land of Canaan. They came out of that, uh, and they all went in, and they all saw the same thing. And they all said they saw the same thing. It's a wonderful land. It flows with milk and honey, blah, blah, blah. They went on. But then they came to different conclusions. Ten of them says, it's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. We can't go in there. I don't know if there was war, if they were killing each other, if there was a famine or there was sickness. I have no idea, but people were dying in that land. And that's what they said. They said, if we go in there, we're going to die because in that land, people are dying. That was their perspective. The two of them said, well, don't you understand? Of course they're dying. They will be bread for us. They saw the same thing, and they said, of course they're dying. God's making the land ready for us. Now, why did they have a different perspective? Because God had said, go into the land. And the only way that made any sense is that they would prosper in the land. So when you think of things from God's perspective, I tell the atheist friends that call me, I say, we're all looking at the same phenomena. You're looking at the same thing I'm looking at. But you're seeing something altogether different. <laughs> I'm seeing God everywhere I look. And you're saying, I don't see God. Well, the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Your problem is a moral problem. You're blind 
You're not seeing the obvious because the darkness has blinded your, your eyes. So uh, we need to see things <clears throat> from God's perspective. There's also a hymn in our hymnal that says this. Let no- I know this one's in your hymnal as well. Let knowledge grow from more to more. That's good to get all the information we can get. But more of reverence in us dwell. That's what's going to give us the perspective that we, want, that we need to have. You know, Isaiah one time saw the Lord high and lifted up before Uzziah died. And if you read about Uzziah, he was a great king. He expanded the borders of Israel. He invented all kinds of weapons. He was successful in warfare. And he got to the place where he thought, a little bit like the devil thought, one more step and I'll be uh, in a better place as far as God is concerned. And so he went into the temple and, of course, he became a leper and he died. Well, because he was such a successful king, I think Isaiah had put all his confidence in this man. I mean, he, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord, yes, but, but a little bit like us. We say we trust God, but, and that's what Isaiah had been doing. But when this man died, he realized, whoop, I better look to the Lord by himself, alone. And he said, when I saw God as he really was, he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, what's the train? What's the hem? And Israel thought that the temple was inhabited by God, and here it was just his hem. That he was way above the temple, just the little end of his robe was sticking in the temple, and that was so glorious that they thought it was the total presence of God. And we need to have a a transcendent concept of God. We really do, uh, for us to make any progress. So we pray with reverence. The next thing we do is we pray for reverence. Hallowed be thy name. Okay. God is absolutely perfect, excellent, and we fear to do anything to detract from his holiness. You've all heard of that Westboro Baptist Church that has just made God's name despicable by the way they act. And we should be thinking in everything we do and say, what impression is this giving people of God? In fact, I think it was... Uh, one of the church fathers that says, hallowed be thy name in us. That's how he thought we should pray it, that his name should be hallowed in our lives. All right? The goal in life, by the way, is perfection. If you talk to most people and you say, what's your goal for Christ- as a Christian? They'd say, well, to get to heaven. Well, that is the ultimate goal. I don't want to deny that. But at the end of chapter 5, just, if you just turn back to the last chapter, It says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The goal is perfection. In fact, Paul says, I labor to the point of exhaustion and agony to present every man perfect in Christ. And God says to us himself, be holy, for I am holy. That is our goal. Now then Paul does say later, I haven't attained that, but I press toward the mark. The people at home will tell you what they hear from me often is, What I look for in the Christian life is passion. I look for somebody that has a passion, has a gleam in his eye to be Christ-like, to be perfect. And we'll never completely attain that. But God, a little bit like he said to David one time, he said, I know you didn't build the temple, but the fact that you wanted to build it is what I was looking for. And so God is looking for the passion. Is your passion perfection? Is your passion to be absolutely Christ-like? Are you convicted when you fall short of that? And do you cry out to God, 
God, make me holy. Make me perfect. Make every word and every action demonstrate your character. That's what he's calling us for. Hallowed be thy name in us, Cyprian said. In fact, I love to read 1 John, the first chapter. In fact, you don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it myself. It says this. We show this life unto you. We've seen it. We've touched it and all that at the beginning. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that we all, you also may have fellowship with us and that your joy might be full. That's wonderful. That's exciting. But what does he say it takes? This then is the message. This will bring it. This will bring this to pass. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light with that passion for perfection, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. That's just a tremendous passage. The, fourth, the fifth thing we pray for, we pray for a realization of his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. God's first priority on this earth is his kingdom. He said we're to seek it first. Uh, you know, all of life is sort of a matter of priorities. Did anybody ever, well, that's not as dark as it should be. This word is an interesting word. Uh, there'll be a lot of people get together in churches this morning and they'll jam, jazz everything up and get all excited and they'll feel like they're worshiping. But that, this word is actually a contraction. If you look it up in the dictionary, it comes from the old English word, worth-ship. Ah, we're talking about values. We're talking about what it is that is the most important thing in your life. And the problem with most Christians is they're defining Christianity only in terms of morals. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't fornicate, you don't steal, you don't, yeah, you're a good person morally. And I don't want to minimize that. That's taken for granted that Christians are good moral people. But once you have dealt with the morals, you still are not where God wants you to be if that's all you've done. He's looking for your value system. Okay? He's looking for your value system. What is number one in your life? What is it that everything else is a means to that end? And most people who call themselves Christians, it's not what they say. They would say it's Christ. But if you went and talked to their wife and to their children and to the people they work with and their closest friends, and you said to them, what is it that gets him the most excited and gets him talking? And some people say, well, that was, that's fishing. Or it's hunting. Or it's his vacation. Or it's his business. In fact, have you ever been in a group where there was a discussion and somebody wasn't saying anything until somebody mentioned a certain one of those, and all of a sudden this person was excited and had stories to tell and was, I mean, it just pushed his button. Well, whatever that was, 
That's what he's worshiping. That's what it is. It's the number one thing in your life, not but what you say with your words, but what you say with your, I would say, your number one passion, the things you get, get you the most excited. That's the thing you're really worshiping. And Jesus, God is calling us to make his kingdom that, or to make him that, the number one thing in our life. And so, God's first priority, first priority on this earth is his kingdom. Now, most people are pursuing an individualistic salvation. I used to pass out papers at the beginning of Bible class in my high school teaching, and I would say to the students, and it was high school students, would you write down why you are a Christian? And I don't think anybody ever wrote anything different from the fact that they wanted to escape hell and go to heaven. Hmm. Did Jesus say, repent so you don't go to hell? Did Jesus say, repent so you can all go to heaven? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he told us to seek first the kingdom. A kingdom is a society of people. Let's say it's the church. And he says, this should be your first priority to demonstrate on this earth what God originally intended for society to look like. So the world can look in and say, if man had not sinned, this won't be perfect, but here's a credible picture of what the whole world would look like. That's the goal. And I think if we ever got that through our heads, it would stop a lot of this crazy stuff that goes on in churches, that defile churches, people, they do their little thing to get the attention to themselves and bring defilement and worldliness and all of that and division and factions and church splits and all this crazy stuff that happens. If we really thought that God is watching very carefully what we do to the church. Our late pastor, Lynn Martin, used to say that. You be careful how you treat the church. It's the apple of God's eye. And if you do the things I just mentioned, you're just sticking your finger in God's eye. And so he's saying, our priority is the kingdom of God. We're here to demonstrate on this earth the essential realities that you'd have if you went and looked on the heavenly. That's what we're to demonstrate. We're here to demonstrate heaven on earth, if you please. And I could talk a long time about that. It's one of my favorite subjects. In fact, Philippi was a Greek, a Roman colony. It, it sort of illustrates this. It was a Roman colony right smack in the middle of a surrounding Greek civilization. Caesar had established that city as, as, as a Roman colony, just the city. So when you walked toward Philippi, you heard the Greek language. You saw Greek customs. You saw Greek legal actions. You saw Greek costume. Everything was Greek. Until you stepped inside that city, and then all of a sudden, it was a drastic change. Everything was spoken in Latin. It was Roman law. It was Roman customs. It was Roman costumes. Did the people in that city act like Christians often act? Oh, I, I, I just don't want the world to see that I'm sort of different. Uh, I. I <laughs> No. The people in that city said, we are Romans. <laughs> Somebody has said Philippi was Rome away from Rome. This is heaven away from heaven. And God's, Jesus said, put your first attention on this. 
In every action, every word, you're focused on making this a pristine example of what heaven would look like on the earth. That really excites me, <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> what would happen if every member of this church had a passion to make this church a perfect example of what God would want on this earth? What would happen? I'll let you go home and think about it. Okay? The goal is not to get to heaven, primarily. That's the, that's the end goal. But that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to bring heaven to earth. In fact, Charles Finney wrote a book years ago, Lectures to Professing Christians. And I don't remember. I read it when I was a teenager, and I'm 77 years old. So, and I don't have a great memory. But there was one statement in that book that stood out to me that I never forgot. He said, and I'm going to quote it pretty much as he gave it, those whose primary reason for being a Christian is to escape hell shall surely go there. And then he quoted the verse, he that seeketh to save his life shall lose it. I'll let you think about that. You might not agree with that, but that's what he said. That's not me. That's Charles Finney said that. He whose primary purpose is to escape hell shall surely go there. That's Charles Finney. I think that's a little strong, but uh, it's something to think about, okay? The sixth thing we pray for is obedience. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. God has no plan for the unsurrendered will. How is God's will done in heaven? Look at Isaiah. Look at those burning seraphim. The word seraphim means burner. They were burning with passion for God. That's what Isaiah saw. Thy will be done. How do we know the will of God? Well, the first thing is obvious. It's not the will of God if it doesn't harmonize with the word of God. Well, you say that's pretty obvious, but it isn't obvious to many people. You have people that go to war and kill people. You have people who swear oaths. You have people who accumulate wealth. You have people who divorce and remarry. Yeah, direct contradiction. They're a little bit, and they pray about it. I, I, I talked to people calling from the billboard, and, and I prayed, and God uh, 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 led me to get this divorce and to uh, marry this man. And when they say that, I think, well, that looks to me like someone outside a bank praying desperately, and I walk up and I say, sir, what are you praying for? Well, I'm trying to find out if it's God's will for me to rob this bank. That's what a lot of prayers are. Things that are direct violations, and they want, they're a little bit like Balaam, who kept going back hoping he got a different answer from God. So if you want to know the will of God, the first thing is to make sure that it, what you're considering does not violate the will of God as clearly revealed in what he has told us. The second way of knowing the will of God is to commit yourself to do it before he tells you what it is. He said, Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it comes from God or whether it just comes from me. If he does his will, then he shall know. I sometimes picture it this way. You give God a blank sheet of paper and you say, God, I really would like to know your will. Would you just write it here for me? And God says, well, I'll be glad to do that. But did you see that little line at the bottom? As soon as you put your John Henry on there, I will start writing my will. 
And the reason he says that is because often what he's going to write there, we don't want to hear. He's going to write some things we don't want to do. But we have to commit to the doing before he writes it because he knows that that's the only way it's going to get carried out. Okay? And then the last one is, you will know the will of God if you're living to please God. The Bible says no one's going to know, uh, have faith unless he pleases God. Now, is there a difference between obeying God and pleasing God? Well, a little bit. If a parent goes to town and he says to the children, now, I see that clock is causing a problem. Uh, when I get home, I want your room to be straightened up, and I want the dishes washed, and I want the carpet swept. And if he comes home and that's done, the parent will be satisfied the child obeyed. But if the child does all that, and in his mind he says, you know, I heard Dad say the other day that the garden needs weeding. Oh, and it's a hot day, and I hate to weed the garden, but I'm going to weed it to put a smile on God's face, on Dad's face when he comes home. I just, it'll be worth it all if I see Dad is especially delighted that I did something to please him. You know, David did that one time. He wanted to build the temple. And God eventually said, no, David, you're not going to build the temple. But David, did I ever tell you I wanted a temple? You look, God gave commands for a tabernacle, but he never left anything at all about building a temple. David wanted to do that just out of his heart. And so God says essentially to David, you're not going to build me a house, David, but I am so pleased that you wanted to please me that I'm going to build you a house. And that's where God gave the, the promise to David that, he, that always someone from his family would sit on the throne when David pleased God and went beyond what God had specifically asked. Obedience. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I'd like to talk a long time on that, but we have to move on. The second thing, or the seventh thing, we pray for necessities. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Oh, so that paycheck at the end of the week is not mine. It's for us. It's family. Okay? Christians are lavish givers. It says we're to be cheerful givers. Does anybody know what the Greek word for cheerful is there? Hilarious. I didn't hear any chuckles when the offering basket was passed. But this should have been a hilarious experience. In fact, God makes a tremendous promise right after that. He says, God, and this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, and it's a verse that I would, if I would have said it, people would say, we always knew John had an overactive imagination. But listen to this. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And I have to define what grace is. What an eraser. Wow. I never had one like that the whole time I was teaching. Ephesians tells us that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. Hmm. Well, so what's up there? God's unlimited love. God's unlimited power. God's unlimited wisdom. God's unlimited forgiveness. 
God's unlimited mercy, and you can just make the list. Unlimited. He's blessed us with all of that through Christ. Puny little people who have access to everything that heaven has to offer in unlimited quantity. You think about that. Now, if I had said that, you could just forget it. But God said that. That's what he told us. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places with Christ, through Christ. Now, I'll quote the rest of the verse. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That means unlimited. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound, unlimited, to every good work. Don't tell me that that enemy has treated you so badly you can't forgive. Don't tell me that God has asked you to do something you can't do. He says unlimited grace for unlimited service. And Christians believe that, okay? And it happens to them because they have been lavish givers. That verse that I just talked about, uh, Hillerose, is precedes this. So if you're not a lavish giver, well, let, let me put it in the positive. If you're a lavish giver, then God is a lavish giver. So if you feel like you're being a little shortchanged on the grace, you might look at your pocketbook. Because God responds in kind. He looks and he says, he's a hilarious giver. I'm going to be a hilarious giver. <laughs> This is wonderful. It should motivate us to give. By the way, giving is an investment. It's not an expense. You know, you pay the telephone bill, you'll never see that money again. But when you give to the kingdom, that will be yours to enjoy forever in some way I don't completely understand. You've laid up treasures in heaven. And if we could ever get that through our heads, you know, people who are investors, they, live, they drive an old car, they wear old clothes, they live in a pretty bare house because they put all their money into their investment. That's how Christians should live. It should be invested in the kingdom, in the kingdom, invested in the kingdom. Well, enough for that. We pray for forgiveness, and I must bring this quickly to close. This is another huge subject. This is the only part of the prayer that's repeated because he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Our late pastor that I just referred to used to say that forgiveness is the basis of all human relationships. Because we're all going to disappoint each other, probably all going to hurt each other, I hope not on purpose. It's going to happen. I, I preach wedding sermons and I try to get this in and I try not to spoil their day. But I tell them that you don't know much about each other yet. When you get married, it's going to be a full revelation of who you are, and all those little dark things that you didn't bring out before you got married will come out, okay? And you won't be able to get away. You see, if, if I'm having trouble with you, I could just stay out of your space for a little while. Mm -hmm. But when you're married, that's, it's 24-7, <laughs> a 24-7 total exposure. And sooner or later, it's going to be irritating. And I want you to make up your mind right here when you're kneeling and making all these wonderful promises, which everybody's going to smile who knows what, ha what actually happens. And you should make those promises because God wants a covenant to be kept. 
But I want to tell you before it happens that when it happens, you've already made up your mind, you're just going to let it go. Just going to let it go. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness absorbs the hurt, absorbs the indignation, absorbs the wrong, absorbs the injustice, and lets the other person go free as if he never did it. That's what Jesus did for us. Isn't it? That's what forgiveness, and that's why it doesn't get done, because it's so unfair. My children would say to me, but Daddy, you don't know what he did to me. And I say, well, that's what forgiveness is, what he did to you. <laughs> you just let it go. And he says if we don't let it go, we're talking now about freedom. Just let it, give that person freedom. You won't have freedom either. And so people are addicted. They can't get free. People call me and they ask about addiction, talk about their addictions. And one of the first things I say to them is, what's your relationship with your dad? Oh, my dad. What's your relationship with your wife? Oh, we're separated. What's your relationship? And I go down, and I say, well, you have all those people in a cage, so you're in a cage. If you let them all go free, God has promised to let you go free. So people are in cages to habits, addictions, fears, depression, loneliness, insecurity, inferiority. Make the list of people who are living in bondage, and they would like to be free from this st- all these hang-ups and problems. Start to set other people free. Corey Ten Boom tells of a dream she had where her worst enemy was in a cage. And so she was going around with a stick, and he couldn't get away, of course. And God was saying to her in the dream, open the cage and let him out. No. And finally she said, I decided, well, I'll do what God said. So she took the key and opened the cage. And guess who came out? Corey herself. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not me saying, that's what Jesus says. You put people in a cage, and you'll be in a cage, just as long as you leave him in there. And when you've let everybody out of the cage, then you will be forgiven, you will be set free. This is tremendous. We were not made for unforgiveness. The The body breaks down. The Bible says envy is a rottenness to the bones. And David says his body suffered whenever he was uh, not living the way he should. You know, some people are living a little bit like somebody who says, I need a handful of stone dust for this science experiment. I'm not going to go downtown. I only need a handful. So I'm going to go out here in the driveway, and I'm going to get some stones, and I'll come in, and I'll turn on the blender, and I'll put the stones in. Wait a minute. You're not going to have any stone dust. And you're also not going to have any blender. (laughs) Because the blender wasn't made for that. And you were not made for unforgiveness. You were not made for sin. Physically. I'm talking about your physical body. In fact, our family doctor who was a German Baptist once said to a friend of mine, 80% of my clients who come here, and most of them were plain people, are not sick because of the pathogen. They're sick because they're living in a way that has lowered their immune system. Too much stress or even sin, and it has lowered their immune system, and then the pathogen takes over. We were not made to sin. We were not made to hate. We were not made to be immoral. We were not made to do any of the things that most people are doing. The body breaks down. We weren't made for that. We were made to love. We were made to serve. We were made to sacrifice. And the Bible says if we hunger and thirst after those things... We shall be filled. And the word there is gorged. 
What does gorged mean? Stuffed. <laughs> and the reason for it is that's what you were made for. You were made to be right. You were made to speak right. You were made to treat people right. You were made to act right. That's what you were made for. And when you do anything different from that, you're putting stones into the blender. Or someone who buys a new baler and says the first project on this farm is to bale up that scrap iron pile. And that's what people are doing with their lives. They're ingesting sin, and they're putting stones into the blender, and it doesn't work. And so forgiveness, you're going to have to forgive me here soon. So I'd like to speak a little bit about temptation. He says, lead us not into temptation. What's he mean by that? Because all of us are going to be led into trial. That's how God grows us up. Paul says he glories in tribulation. How many of you, raise your hand here. How many of you glory in tribulation? You're shaking your heads. Let me read what Paul says. He says, I get a lot of mileage out of tribulation, and I just glory in it. He talks about glorying in the grace of God, and then he says, and I glory in tribulation also, if I can find this passage, Romans chapter 5. And not only so, we glory in tribulations also, knowing that, now look at the mileage you get out of tribulation. Patience. And patience gives us experience. That's character. And character experience gives us hope. And hope results in love. And Paul says, when I get into, oh, by the way, tribulation comes from the Latin word tribulum. I had Latin in high school. I hated it. We said Latin's a dead language, as dead as dead can be. It killed all the Romans, and now it's killing me. But we did learn some vocabulary. And the tribulum was the flail that you beat the grain out of the stocks with. So this is severe suffering. Then Paul says, I glory in it because I get patience out of it, I get hope out of it, I get character out of it, and finally, it deepens my love. But what does he mean, lead us not into temptation? Well, he's not asking for it to be delivered from trial. He's asking for it to be delivered from what happens in the trial so frequently if we're not careful. And that is we start to speak badly of the person who's mistreating us. Or we even speak badly about God. We're tempted to blame God. We're tempted to blame others. We're tempted to blame our circumstances. That's what we're praying. God, don't let me do that. Let me glory into tribulation. Lead me not. You know, when we're being in trial, there's just a thin edge that we tip over into that blaming people, blaming circumstances, blaming God. And Paul is saying, look, don't let the situation I'm in tip me into that. I don't want to do that. And then we pray for deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Many people pray this, deliver us from the evil one. Everybody in this world wants the freedom to be their best. They want to be conquerors of anger, pain, bitterness, disappointment, anxiety, poverty, broken dreams, and hopes. And I love that song in our hymn that says, O life in whom is life indeed, through whom our best desires are freed. Stir thou that life in us, we plead. We come, we come to thee. And it's encouraging that Jesus recognized the that evil does exist. You know, we live in a world where people don't believe in evil. They believe man is basically good. And then they're disillusioned because that's not true. We reckon with reality there is real evil in the world, and Jesus can deliver us from that evil. And then we conclude, and I'll quickly conclude, thine is the kingdom. It's not our kingdom. This is God's kingdom, and that's why we need to treat it with the highest respect. And the Bible says we're a kingdom of priests. We're here to mediate God's grace to a needy world. They need us to do that. 
Our passion is that people would see the excellence of God's character. Ephesians talks about God choosing, Christ redeeming, the Holy Spirit sealing, and after every one of it says, to the praise of the glory of God. We want everybody to see the glory of God's character, and that's why we're here. Thine is the kingdom. I conclude with a story. There was a meeting where there was an old preacher and a famous actor. And somebody at the end of the meeting said uh, to the actor, would you stand up and declaim the Lord's Prayer? And of course, he was an actor. So he stood up and he did just a fabulous rendition of the Lord's Prayer, just like only a person who was highly trained in eloquence could do. And after he was done, everybody clapped. And then they asked the old pastor to stand up and recite the Lord's Prayer. And he stood up with a broken voice, with a weak voice, and he recited the Lord's Prayer. And after he was done, everybody was in tears. So somebody went to the actor and said, what was the difference? When you recited the Lord's Prayer, everybody applauded. But when he recited the Lord's Prayer, everybody wept. And he said, the difference is this. I know the prayer, I know, but he knows the shepherd. Let's learn to know the shepherd. I gave you 10 postures of prayer. Let me just quickly read them uh, so that you have them. Pray as sons. I, I'm trying to show you this covers everything. Pray as sons. Pray as brothers, relationships. Pray with reverence. Pray for reverence. Pray for a realization of his kingdom. Pray for obedience. Pray for necessities, pray for forgiveness, pray against temptation, and pray for deliverance. Now, what would you add to that list? It's all in this prayer. So shall we recite the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.